0: All right, well, hope you like that song. We maybe slow it down fractionally next time. I got so excited. Sometimes I get excited and <laughs> just end up uh, singing them a little fast. But what a wonderful song. Certainly it could be sung fast. It should put a bounce in your step to think about who your Savior is, what he's done for you, what he's promised you, how, what your future looks like, what your present looks like how he's undertaken to meet your every need. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. So when you think about it from that perspective, we're sheltered in the arms of God all of the time. Even even though it doesn't feel that way in terms of it doesn't mean God didn't promise that we would avoid the hard things in life or the difficult things in life just because he's with us. He said, I'll be with you through those hard things. While you're in the midst of those hard things, in the face of the storm and the wind and the waves that are crashing, I will be with you. That's the part of it. I walk through the valley of the death. I fear no evil for you are with me. You know, we talked about Psalm 23 extensively in a mini-series a while back. It's, It's not the fact that I'm going through the valley that gives me comfort. It's the fact that while I have to go through those valleys in life, those dark things in life, God is with me while I do that. And so, sheltered in the arms of God. And what a wonderful devotion that was on Wednesday even about how He'll be with us right through the door as we walk through the door to eternity with Him. Right up to our very deaths, He'll be right with us even then, even as we approach that door and that, that hallway leading to the door. I like how Chris said that it 's not necessarily the doorway of death itself that 's so frightening or so difficult it's it 's the hallway leading up to that that sometimes is challenging and difficult or the most challenging and difficult. I love that he said, God will be with us then he 'll be with us as we go through that door and obviously he 'll be with us for all of eternity on the other side of that of that door. So I think about that and I was encouraged by that. I hope you were too on Wednesday as he was able to share that to fill in for me while I was doing a, a funeral service in Inevit at the same same time, and so just even be praying for that for that service that God would just even have undertaken the hearts and the lives of the people that were there that He would bring a harvest from the proclamation of the gospel message there. Another thing I kind of muddled up that bulletin, that play group. I, I didn't make that very clear. It's, it's primarily for pre-K and under. I added the plus sign at the end of that to confuse Brent. But <laughs> the, the plus sign was just saying, you, if you're somebody who has a mixed group of kids, <laughs> you don't obviously have to leave some of them in the car. That was the idea. <laughs> the, those, those kids could also uh, participate in it, but it's, it's one of the things that uh, you know, I was asked by Jen, is this something that we have? I said, no. I am not aware of a young, you know, a young kids' play group kind of a thing. And uh, if you're willing to host it and, and give it a shot, uh, let's let's see see if it ministers to some needs here. So, if that's something that you're interested in, reach out to her so she can coordinate in terms of even putting a lunch together or you know how many how many people she would have coming to that. But it, it's mainly intended for non-school age kids that. Would be available with their with a parent during the week there, and would want to maybe go play with other kids for a few hours. So, nothing formal about it. Uh, if you might be a nice opportunity to meet some other parents and for those kids to meet and play with some other some other toddlers. I guess that's the the main idea. So, with that being said, let's start with a word of prayer, Dear Heavenly Father. Thank you for your amazing love. Thank you that you could see us even in our sin. You could see us dead in our trespasses. You could make us alive through the work of your Son. Thank you that you made a way for us to be reconciled to you, to be redeemed out of the slave market of sin that we were tied to and connected to through our birth in Adam and through our own sinful choices. Thank you that you broke down that barrier, that wall of sin that was separating us through your work on the cross as you became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God through faith in the finished work of your son. Thank you that the gospel is that simple that we would let go of anything else we were trusting in and put all our confidence in what you've already done for us. Pray that we would want to proclaim that message into the places and spaces that you direct us in this dark world around us so that those who are drowning just like we once were could grab onto that life preserver of salvation that is available through the faith in your son. Pray that we would be have boldness to proclaim that, that we wouldn't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Pray that we would see how vital it is for us to be light bearers for you and that we would see the souls around us as souls that are marching off to an eternity apart from you unless they hear the life-saving news about the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Pray that that would embolden us to want to never get used to The sound of Christless feet marching off into an eternity apart from you, that we would see them with that kind of vision. We would have a compassion for them and want to share the gospel with them. Pray that when it comes to one another, we would see that you made us a part of something much bigger than ourselves, a body of believers. Pray that we would see the value in it, that you would convince us that we're blessed to be able to live life uh, where we can be mutually encouraging to one another and strive together in a way that could advance the cause of Christ more effectively than we ever could on our own. Pray that we would be, want to be a part of that, and that we'd see that without, with parts missing, the body can't function as you intended it to. Thank you for that great design, and that we would just be convinced that you know what's best. Thank you even for this time in your word. Pray that we would grow from it, that we would learn from it, that we would be challenged from it. Pray that you give me con- wisdom as I speak, so that it would be accurate and clear. Thank you again for all that you've done in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's message is, To God Be Glory Forever. And you could insert the, way, the word the, to God be the glory forever. We'll see in the verses that we cover today, it just says, To God be glory forever. And it was fitting that Brent selected that song, Great Hymn of the Faith, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Starting with, so loved to, the world that he gave us his son. It doesn't, there's nothing more fundamental to Christianity than the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why we talk about it so often here. It's central, you'll see, to even the be, the establish, being established in the faith or being built up in the faith, being reminded of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the thing that actually God uses to strengthen and build us up, to encourage us and establish us in the faith. And that's why we speak of it so often here. I love to tell the story. It be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. When you think about to God be glory forever, it's, of course, a part of our series here on Paul's prayers. And prayer is simply the means by which a Christian communicates with God or talks to God. Sometimes we make terms complicated or sometimes we haven't even really considered what a term even means. But to pray, it's nothing, there's nothing deeply confusing about it. It's the way that you as a child of God speak to or talk to your heavenly father. And so that's why we say dear heavenly father. It's not the only way you could begin a prayer. You could just start talking and your father who is with you all the time through his spirit hears you and he wants you to involve him in your life, but prayer is how you talk to God. And those communications take various forms and can be organized into several categories. So what are the different types of ways that you talk to God? And there's many of them. This isn't intended to be exhaustive, but some of them are, have been given labels. And so in terms of theological terms, we have petitions or supplications where you're making a personal request to God on your own behalf. Then we have intercession which is a request made to God on behalf of somebody else. We have confession, we have thanksgiving, and we have praise. So communicating praise to God is a way to talk to God, to say, you're wonderful. Isn't he wonderful, wonderful, wonderful? Isn't Jesus my Lord wonderful? Now you could be communicating to that if your mind or your mental attitude was inclined towards him as you were saying that both to yourself and to Him. You're a wonderful God. You're an awesome God. You're a faithful God. You're a great God. And you think about the different kinds of praises that you could lift up to God. It's a category or a way of talking to God. Now, you don't have to be thinking about it in those terms, friends. It's just that happens to be how we could break down some of the different ways that people talk to God. In the Bible, they've been given some labels. And so this one is called praise. Prayers or expressions of praise directed to God have an even fancier word called doxologies. Okay, make a note. There'll be a little quiz on your way out this morning. (laughs) Doxologies. All it is is a fancy word. People weren't content with simple, so we made things complicated. So we wanted a phrase that could refer to these spontaneous, in most cases, spontaneous expressions of praise directed to God, and they're found throughout Scripture. There's examples that are found in the Old Testament, examples in the New Testament. We're going to look at a couple today because this prayer of Paul that we're going to examine is an example of a prayer of praise that's directed to God. So as most of you know, we're, I think, five or six lessons into this series on Paul's prayers. And we have touched on the idea that depending on how you identify them, there could be anywhere from 25 to 30-some prayers that are recorded sometimes in form of a summary, sometimes a little bit less, a little more vague, sometimes very, very direct. And so we're kind of working our way through some of them in this series on Paul's prayers. Turn, if you will, to Romans 16, 25, if you haven't already. And because it's always up on the screen, very often I'm always the last person to turn to that. But Romans sixteen twenty-five through 27, we're going to see an example of one of these prayers of praises or doxologies here in the Bible. We might as well pick up in verse 24. This is how Paul is ending this letter, so the whole section is called a benediction, the way that he kind of passes on blessing, a blessing, if you will, to this group of believers that he's been writing this letter to. But verse 24 begins with, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. And in a sense, that is a prayer in and of itself. Now we move on to this prayer of praise, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now has been made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. To God, alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So there is our prayer of praise. We will break it down here in greater detail. Now the first part of this prayer is an example of a prayer of praise. As you think about now to him who is able. Now we'll get down to the bottom of it, but really the the prayer of praise, there's a lot of explanation stuck in the middle of it here in terms of other ideas and thoughts that Paul wants to share, and we'll go through them. But now to him, be glory through Jesus Christ forever, amen. That's the prayer of praise. So you actually take the first three words, now to him, and you jump to the end of verse 27, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. That's the doxology. That's the primary doxology there. So to God alone wise, alone wise modifies the primary idea there. Through Jesus Christ, that modifies the primary idea. But the primary idea is to God be glory forever. Amen. And that is the, the title of our our message. But when you think about these prayers of praise, I told you that they're found throughout Scripture. For the sake of time, we also have the Lord's Supper here this morning. I had to cut a bunch of it out of this this message, but I want to show you at least one old testament example before we jump into this present example here in the new testament so turn if you would to 1 chronicles 29 now we don't necessarily get as much page turning on a sunday morning into the old testament but i want you to see this prayer that david has that's a prayer of praise or a fascinating doxology in the old testament here so it's first and second chronicles first and second kings Sorry, I, I said that wrong. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. So some of you are like, man, where do we find this guy? Just so you know, y- you were gazing into the bottom of a barrel, and, and right down there at the bottom, First Chronicles twenty nine. We're looking for verse 10. That's where we're going to pick up here. We're not going to read the whole thing, but let's just read verses 10 through 13. The, the prayer actually goes on longer than that, but starting at verse 10, therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. So you could keep going, but you have a prayer of thanks there and a, and a prayer of of praise, a doxology there. There's many times that David does this. You can find it throughout the Psalms. There's other examples that you find in the Old Testament too, but David is connected to quite a few of them, I would say. And so there's a fascinating one in Nehemiah. I can't remember the exact reference, but you'll have to look into some of that on your own. But here now Paul is going to give us an example of a New Testament doxology, and he's going to begin by praising God's power and describing his desire for these believers at the same time. So on, on one hand here, he's praising God's power as he begins this prayer of praise, but he's also expressing what his desire is for these believers. And so we jump into, and let's look again at verse 25, now to him who is able, so there's an example expression of God's power. We'll touch on that in a bit. He's able to do what? This is Paul's desire to establish you. How? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest. So we steal that, but now made manifest from verse 26, the beginning of verse 26, because it finishes the thought here in verse 25. So this is a prayer of praise in the sense of it's lifting up and extolling God's power but it's also speaking of Paul's desire for these believers so we begin with to him who is able and this highlights the power of God I hope it rem- makes you think about certainly the first thing when you say he is able now if you were to say he is able to anyone who's gone through our camp ministries I see a couple out here I'm not going to put you on the spot. But anyone who's gone through the summer camp ministries, if you were to say, He's able, now tell me the first song that comes to your mind. We got some volunteers for singing it, huh? Right? Yeah? All right, good. All right, those who aren't volunteering, stand up. No. <laughs> But it's he's able, right? He's able, I know he's able, I know my Lord is able to carry me through, right? And there's more to the song. We'll we'll do the rest of it to end our service. (laughs) But he's able. Now to him who is able, that's a doxology all by itself, friends, There's a bunch here, but that is, in terms of a prayer, that is a doxology by itself. In in effect, you're saying, I know you're able, God. I praise you because you are able, God. Now, able to do what? Well, of course, anything. In the context, though, we have, because you are uh, the one who is able to establish you, Now to him who is able to establish you. And as you think about what God is able to do in terms of Paul's mentality or focus here, it's on God's ability to bring about Christian growth or Christian maturity in these believers. If he's capable of doing it in their lives, he's capable of doing it in your lives, he's able to establish you. And if you're saying it to yourself, he's able to establish me. You know what it doesn't say? Because you are able to establish yourselves. Paul doesn't say, thank God that you're able to establish yourselves. That's not how he ends this this letter. He says, to him who is able to establish you. And this is a fascinating truth that we can't lose sight of. This is why the Christian has hope. Because if, if becoming established or growing in your faith depended on you, and your strength, and your abilities. You'd be hopeless. You'd be walking around with your head hanging down because you know, as the apostle Paul did, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there's nothing good that dwells. I can't do this. I know I can't do this. I hope you know you can't do this. Because until you get to a place where you realize that through my own efforts, through my own strength, I'm never going to successfully grow or mature in my faith, apart from, unless it's Christ that's working in me, the yet not I, but Christ mentality, until I have that, I will never move forward in my faith. And that's what, hopefully, this is the takeaway that you have here from this little introduction here, to him who is able, not I, not I. But Christ, now remember, He or God is able to provide for your every need. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but the Bible has some just fascinating passages connected to the types of things all relating to spiritual things primarily, but the types of things, or that's the emphasis, I should say. They're not all relating to that, but that's the emphasis. As it relates to the ability of God to undertake in your life. Now, I want to go through a few because I couldn't help myself. This isn't really even the focus of this section here, but I was just blown away being reminded of this little phrase, now to him who is able. That could be your takeaway from this message. Maybe that's what you needed to hear this morning. Maybe maybe for you this morning, it wasn't about to God alone wise be glory forever. Now that's something that should be always on your mind as well. But maybe the thing that you needed to hear this morning was, to him who is able, that's what you needed to be reminded of. You're facing something that seems impossible. It seems like I could never get through this. It seems like this will be the death of me. And maybe it will be in a physical sense. But when you look at these things and you think about these things and you're facing these trials and these hardships in your life, this is the thing we got to come back to not to Him who is able. He's able to carry me through whatever it is that I'm going through. And so, let's look at just a few more examples of this. We have Acts twenty thirty two. So now, brethren, I command you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up now here, this is a very similar idea Is what Paul's communicating here. Here he's saying, now to him who is able to establish you, same concept, same idea, to him who is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Whose strength is this going to be through though? His strength, his ability, not my capability, not me, not I, but Christ. We see another example here in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you, always having all sufficiency in all things, how is that? Because He is the one who made it possible. He was able to make all grace abound to you. That made you then sufficient. I'm not sufficient in myself to think anything as being from myself, but my sufficiency comes from God. He can make me sufficient where I am otherwise insufficient. It's only when I see that I don't have it all figured out. This isn't going to rest on my shoulders. This isn't about me at all. This is about Christ living in me and working through me that makes living for Him even possible. But now I'll have sufficiency in all things, may have also an abundance for every good work, meaning God can empower me for every ministry He calls me to. You see that, friends? God is never going to direct you or lead you or call you to serve Him in any capacity without also empowering, enabling, equipping, and directing that. Don't ever forget that. Sometimes you feel like you're in a position where in the deep depths of your heart, you know that God wants to use you in this position, but it seems, man, I don't know if I can do this. You can't. I don't know if I'm going to be sufficient for this. You're not. But he is. But he is. He is able. And so when he puts you in those spots, instead of turning and tail and running, let's look up. Let's look, our, look, let's look up at the author and finisher of our faith. As we look up in those moments, and we say, Lord, give me your strength give me your sufficiency give me your vision help me to not be ashamed then god is automatically guaranteed when your purpose aligns with his will when your desire aligns with his will he automatically is there to empower and make the mission a success from human perspective no, make it a success from a divine perspective in terms of for your benefit, for the benefit of the one that He's causing you to minister to and for His glory. It's a success right there. Even if, even if you can't see in the short term how God is working in that circumstance or using you in that circumstance or what good He could bring from that circumstance, your willingness to trust Him and to let Him use you in that circumstance means it will be a success. I like this song I've been Going through my mind a lot lately, but the, one of the hooks or the bridge of the song says, even when I can't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. Song's called Waymaker. It says you're a waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. Now, does God need to be told who he is? Not in a sense, but that's what a doxology is. You're awesome, God. And it's like, oh, that's news to me. (laughs) You're wonderful. You're amazing, God. That's just you having a heart of praise, and you're lifting it up to him, and he is pleased by that. We have more examples here. I told you we were going to go through these quickly. (laughs) Ephesians 3.20. Liar. Now to him who is able, what's he able to do? To do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, don't miss this last line. According to the power that works in us. Now we might have a whole message on this, so that's all you get for today. He's able. How about this one, Philippians 3.21? Who, referring to Jesus Christ, I added that who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. That sounds like must take amazing power to do that, to transform us according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Are there limits to the power of your God? Think about how big the trial is that you're facing this morning. How, how large is it looming in front of you? Is it difficult to even see past it? It's so large. And I, I don't know exactly what you're all going through. But it's something, I guarantee it. You got a trial, a circumstance, a difficulty. Some smaller than others, but it's kind of relative, isn't it? But you're facing something. Some of them are real big in human terms. They're really big. But they're never too big for your God. God. He's always bigger than whatever it is you're going through. He's able. Now to him who is able. We have another example here. 2 Timothy 1.12 For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now, what do you think Paul had committed to him? Well, there's no clear, he doesn't explain it clearly here. (laughs) Several things. He had committed any kind of a ministry effort that he'd been involved in through the power of the Spirit of God. He'd committed the results, the outcomes, the safeguarding of those individuals that he had been in contact with. He had committed that to the Lord. He knew he couldn't do it. He wasn't capable of Finishing what God had started in them. Only God would be capable of finishing what he had started. Likely, it's referring to the safeguarding of his soul. Paul was absolutely confident that God, he was persuaded and believed that God was able to keep what he'd committed to him. This idea that if to put your faith in Christ is to, in a sense, say, I give up, in a sense, is to say, I can't save myself. I'm going to have to trust in your promises. I'm going to have to trust your faithfulness to do what you said you would do, which is to give me eternal life, to rescue me on a permanent, eternal basis. I can't do that, but I'm trusting you to do that. I've given that over to you in a sense. Our next example is in Hebrews 7.25. Therefore... He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's a fun verse, isn't it? Save to the uttermost. Is there anything too big for your God? We, let, we end here, this little mini part on he is able with Jude 24a. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling Who can help you make it possible for you to live a life that would bring God glory in time? He's talking to believers about living, Christian living in time. Who's capable of making that successful? Not you. You trusting God to work in and through you and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. You see, when you seek spiritual success through your own strength that produces desperation, despair, and hopelessness. If you're being honest and you reflect back on your Christian life, and you think about times that you were trying to do the right thing through your own strength, you were trying to live for the Lord, but you were trying to empower that on your own, to, to make that happen in your own life, to produce that outcome through just pulling on your bootstraps real hard, trying to make this happen, to pump this out in your flesh, being convinced that these are standards I've learned about what's right, I better get down to business, put my nose to the grindstone and produce this manner of living in my own life because God has shown me that that's right. Sometimes we're motivated by the right ideas. We're, we're taught things, and I recall this in my own life. You're taught all these things about what God says is wrong and what God says is right, and if you don't understand that you could never produce that kind of life On your own, through your own strength, you end up just wallowing in despair, in frustration, in disappointment, in discouragement because you were looking to yourself to do the right things. Your motives were good. Based on Him, only then can He produce in me, through me, as I abide in Him, a manner of living that would bring Him honor and glory and would bring me joy and peace and contentment and purpose. In this life. So you don't do this. You don't have spiritual success in your own strength. You do it by realizing that it's him who is able. So you're effectively, the doxology here would be, Lord, you are able. Lord, you are able. The expression of that truth alone is something worthy of our praise. And the question is, are you living in light of this truth? Are you mentally going sitting where you're at, going through your days, saying, Lord, you are able. I'm not, but you are. See, walking by faith involves a conviction that God is the one who is able, and God is the one who is sufficient, and you are only made to be sufficient through the power of His Spirit working inside of you. So now we have to move on. What is the general statement modified by? So the general statement is, to him who is able... Now it's modified by the phrase to establish you. You see, God is able or capable of anything. We've seen sort of a little bit of an overview of that here this morning. But the focus here is God is able to establish you. Here Paul highlights one specific application of God's infinite power. This is Paul's prayerful desire for these believers. That God would establish them. What a wonderful thing to ask for. I hope you're praying that for me. Pray that God would establish me. That he would build me up. That he would strengthen me. That he would teach me. Pray that for one another. That God would establish so and so. And when you think of that word establish, the idea is to strengthen, support. I like this one, prop up. You know how when we're leaning on our own understanding, when we're focused on ourselves, when we're walking in our own strength, in our own wisdom, we have this idea of kind of slumping over? It's not a pretty sight, is it? When we're trying to live the Christian life in our own strength, it's not a pretty sight. You, you, you hate to even look in the mirror at those times. So God comes along and He props us up. Props us back up, straightens us out. Another one is to make more determined or resolute. So to establish you is to make you more determined or resolute in what? In your faith, in God's plan, in the direction that God has for your life, in your conviction about being an instrument, a vessel that God can use to minister to the needs of others. Be more resolute in that. That's the idea. And God produces this outcome in you, but only when you get out of the way. To him who is able to establish you, can he establish you while at the same time you're trying to establish yourself? The answer is no. He can convict you, he can get a hold of your thinking. He's working, always working, to try to get your eyes back on him. But he can't establish you while you're walking by means of the flesh while you're leaning on your own understanding. So that's always an important reminder. See, the Christian living as much as anything, the Christian life as much as anything is dependent on getting out of his way. Stop resisting. Stop fighting. Stop preventing. Allow him, let him have his way in you. Let this mind be in you. This idea of having... A positive volitional response where you say, "Not I, but Christ, but that's the extent of it, is getting out of the way, and then watching him come in and c- continue with this transformation process that he's seeking to accomplish in your life. This is a song, another song I love that says, "Why are you fighting these hands that are holding you?" So then we have this next phrase. Now, to him who is able to establish you, how is he going to do that? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, and then according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest. So, two different clauses, both confirming or adding to, qualifying this phrase, to him who is able to establish you. Now, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, speaks to the means God uses to accomplish the objective. And what's the objective? To establish you. The preaching of the gospel is a primary instrument for establishing saints. Being reminded of God's great love for you should make your faith more resolute. There was one of our definitions of the word Established. Being reminded of the gospel reminds me of God's great love for me. As I see that, and I see great God's then plan for me and His purpose for me, it should make my faith stronger. It should build me up. It should prop me up so that I keep my eyes on Him. This phrase, my gospel, simply refers to the fact that Paul's mission and message was communicated directly to him by God. He didn't come up with this on his own. You see this in Galatians one twelve. Paul speaking, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Direct revelation to Paul. Uh, So he takes a personal interest in the gospel message. He says, my gospel. Now think about that. If the word gospel means message of good news, is that how you see the gospel message? It's my message of good news that God has entrusted me with. He's communicated it to me directly in His Word. And He's. do you take ownership of that in a sense to say, this is my message of good news. That's what, an ambassador is somebody who's sent to proclaim a message. But in the case of the Christian, it's not a message of despair. Though very often that's the messaging we have. We focus on everything that's wrong with the world instead of the one who is wonderful, the one who can give life, the one who has said, I'm going to take you from this temporal world and I'm going to transform you, give your, make, make you a citizen of heaven so that you have an eternity to look forward to, where the things of this world will grow strangely dim, where you don't love this world, you don't love this present age. You see, loving the world can take many different forms. It's not just loving Satan's influence on the world. It's being consumed by and fixated on the temporal things, period. Whether they're good or bad. There are some temporal things that are bad. Should you fixate on them? No, whatever. The things that you should be fixated on and speaking about are the things that are lovely and noble and upright, the things that are eternal, those those are the things that we should primarily be fixated in on. In fact, even the Word of God even says there's things that are evil that you shouldn't even speak of. But yet, that's what we find ourselves speaking of. God's like, you're not going to fix that. I'm the one that's going to deal with evil. I'm the one who's going to put an end to it. Eventually, I'm going to make it so there is no more sin. There is no more evil. And for all of eternity, that's the kind of environment that you're going to get to live in. So in the meantime, focus on how you can lift me up, proclaim me, and throw life jackets and life vests and man lifeboats to rescue those who are drowning, not through your own strength, but be an ambassador for me who is proclaiming a message of good news, my message of good news. That's what my gospel means. Do you see that? You've been entrusted with a message of good news. Is that what you're proclaiming? Is that what you're lifting up? Is that what's fueling your soul, feeding your soul, encouraging your soul? Now, there's many ways to express that. I'm not suggesting that there isn't. There's lots of ways that God could use you. I'm saying the overarching emphasis of it, though, is it's good news that we're proclaiming, not bad news. That's the primary focus of the Christian. And so it doesn't mean there's never a time to discuss or, or be interact with. Things that are things that are not good, things that are not uh, right, things that are dragging that are negative or have a negative influence on people in general, a society in general, a community in general, to speak on those things or to stand up for those things i 'm not saying there's not a place for that, but that 's not our primary focus that 's secondary to our primary focus, which is that we 've been entrusted with this message of good news good news that's why i love that he says it that way my gospel now paul identifies the gospel he preached very directly in another letter turn to 1 corinthians 15 for those of you who are have been a part of this church for some time this is a passage you're very familiar with we're going to look at verses 3 and 4 but when you talk about my gospel he doesn't expound on what he means by that here But in 1 Corinthians, we see that he does expound on it very directly. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. If you don't have a Bible, here it is on the screen. And Paul says this, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. He goes on in this section to say that if anyone adds to that gospel, that message of good news in any way, God's wrath or anathema is on them. Paul is not willing to compromise the content of my gospel. My message of good news is Christ and Him crucified. How that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again, victorious of death, hell, and the grave. Jesus Christ is our message of good news, how he came to rescue those who were drowning, who, the, who were estranged from him, who were separated from him as a result of their being identified with the sinfulness of the human race, whose first example of that was Adam. For as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death came with sin. And then death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the predicament that the Bible says that mankind finds himself in. Born into a race that is associated with sinfulness. Not only does it say that you were born into an identification with that sinfulness, but that you yourself sinned, for all sinned. The Bible says... In Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So how is it that mankind can get to a place through religion, through arrogance, through ego, where they say, man, isn't God lucky to have me? I don't need to be rescued. I'm so much better than all these other people. These folks need to be rescued. I've seen them. I've watched their lives, but... I deserve to go to heaven. And God says, there's none good. Why do you think you're an exception to that? Can't you see that even your best efforts at right living, because they exclude me, are viewed by me as filthy rags? That's the prophet Isaiah says. Even your best stuff stinks to me. It's offensive to me because it excludes me. To exclude me is to act in rebellion against me. So there's this separation. All have sinned and fallen short. So everyone was in that Bind in that predicament by their birth and by their choices. And this sin that each man had committed separated them from a holy God because God's holiness made it impossible for him to have contact with sinfulness. A little bit of sin mixed with holiness would taint God's holiness, and he couldn't have that. But yet, another characteristic of God besides being holy is that he was loving. And so God in his love said, I'm going to make a way for that barrier of sin to be broken down. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to take all of that sin and I'm going to put it on my son, Jesus Christ. So when Christ comes, we have this barrier of sin that is broken down by Jesus Christ. We can use the same I from S-I-N, from sin. We can take Christ, C-H-R-I-S-T. We can break down that barrier of sin through the person work of Jesus Christ. That's why Christ could could boldly declare, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door by me. If anyone enters in, he shall be saved. But the question is, if you have a predicament, and if Christ came to pay your debt, to die in your place, to bear all of the sins of the world, is it sin that's separating you from going through this door into a relationship with God? And the answer is no. The way you go through this door is you accept by faith what Christ has already done for you. The Bible calls that believing. You believe in the name of the Son of God. He who has the Son has that life with the Father. He who does not have the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So how do you go through that door? The Philippian jailer had the same question in Acts 16 when he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what it means to walk through that door, to accept the gift of God, which is eternal life. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. Faith is to walk through that door, to put all of your dependence on what Christ has already done for you. The moment you do that, it's by grace you've been saved now through faith. Saved means to be saved from the hell you deserve to heaven you don't. You've been saved by Faith. It's not of yourself. You didn't do anything. Christ broke down that wall that was separating you, that wall of sin, that partition that was separating you from God. You just walked through the door. It's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. You freely receive that gift and you too can be saved. And that's the gospel message, how that Christ died for our sins. He died in our place. The idea of substitutionary death in your, on your behalf or in your place see the preaching or the proclamation of jesus christ that's how this continues my gospel and the preaching of jesus christ one and the same thing really it refers to the content of the message about jesus christ now it certainly also includes the things that christ taught because that's one of the things that paul taught is the things that had been declared by christ himself that he had learned that had been revealed to him by god himself Those things would also then be included in this phrase, the preaching or the proclamation of Jesus Christ. It's who Jesus is and what he's done. Also, it's the truths that were communicated by Christ to the apostles and then revealed even to Paul directly. Now, our next phrase here is, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest. But now made manifest. This word revealed and made manifest they're the opposite of kept secret. So there was something that wasn't very clear that's now been made manifest or revealed. See, to be kept secret doesn't mean it was completely secret. It just means it was a mystery that was hidden. It wasn't something that was clear or obvious at the time that it was given. And so as we look at this, a lot for those of you wondering what I'm doing up here, I lost my light, so that's that's all right. Okay, we will make it work. So this phrase made manifest, now this is what gives us the understanding of what we're talking about here. It, it means to cause to become clearly revealed. It doesn't mean it never was revealed. It means to make what was revealed clear. So when we look at this word mystery in the sense that it concerns something which transcends the power of man to conceive, So, this isn't the gospel, this plan of salvation. It's not something that man came up with. Man didn't invent this. So, in a sense, it was mysterious to man because man never would have come up with this plan. Man, by nature, always puts the focus on man. Never puts the focus on God. Any plan for rescue that man came up with would have involved self-betterment, self-improvement, working your way into God's graces. It would have involved a cleaning program to scrub out the filth in your life to try to make yourself acceptable to God. And if you don't believe me, just ask yourself, what does all religion of all kinds effectively teach? It puts the focus on the individual and self-betterment in one way, shape, or form instead of God doing for man what man could never do for himself. Any plan man would come up with would involve this idea of merit and how you could make yourself more deserving of God's grace than somebody else would be. That's what man always would come up with because that's how the world works. That's how the human mind works. So other religions certainly do that where they put man as the focus of it instead of what God can do for man. Man has to fix himself, clean up his act, jump through hoops, check off boxes in order to make himself acceptable to God. And various forms of Christianity teach that same thing effectively that salvation is earned. It's an earned reward for people who jump through enough hoops or people who are good. That heaven is for good people and hell is for bad people. Sometimes they'll say, you do your best, and then they'll concede that God will do the rest. I've heard that several times. Not that they didn't say it that way, but that's what they're really teaching is that do the best you can, and then God comes along and He does the rest. So in a sense, it was a Mystery. The gospel. What are we talking about? We're talking about my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. In a sense, that was a mystery. The message of God's plan of redemption through Christ is revealed through glimpses, pictures, and shadows in the Old Testament, but it's revealed plainly in the New Testament. So that's what this is focused on here, according to the revelation of the mystery that had previously been kept secret. We turn to verse 26 now. And by the prophetic scripture made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God with what objective in mind for obedience to the faith. The prophetic scriptures refers to the Old Testament prophetic books. The prophets who wrote various books of the Old Testament, this is the idea here about hidden, They were not fully aware of the meaning of their own words, but yet they wrote at God's command much about God's plan of redemption. Now, it wasn't clearly revealed the way it has been by the New Testament, by the coming of Christ, by the teaching of Christ, but yet they were writing prophetically about things they didn't understand things that they didn't fully understand. That's the, the phrase I would like to sti- stick with here. They were not fully aware or understanding of the meaning of what they were writing. But you see this phrase here, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, God commanded them to speak. God spoke through them. And much of what they wrote touched on, it alluded to, it foreshadowed, it pointed to, it pictured, it illustrated God's plan of redemption. Now, how do we know that? Because now after Christ's coming and subsequent teaching, the Old Testament is seen in a new light. Now, with the benefit of hindsight is the idea there. So you see Jesus talking about this as he's traveling with some followers of his on the road to Emmaus in Luke twenty-four twenty-seven. This speaks of what Jesus said to these individuals. Now, what scripture would have been available at that point in time? the Old Testament scriptures. And it says this, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, meaning the Old Testament scriptures that were available at, up to that point, what did Jesus do to those with those individuals? He expounded to them in all the scriptures, not some of the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And you say, which scriptures are those? Which Old Testament scriptures are those? Well, there's a number of them. The the ones that are most obvious to are like Psalm twenty two, um, Isaiah fifty three are the are the clearest. But there has to be innocent would have to die in the place of the guilty, and that is pictured and talked about and discussed throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Now did. How much clarity did they have as they looked at it? Only God knows. The point being is that it was hidden, it wasn't as clear, it wasn't revealed in the same way that it was as you look backwards now with the benefit of hindsight, seeing now Christ as that final lamb, that spotless lamb of God who died as a substitute, an innocent substitute in the place of the guilty. And so that's what's being referred to here. Here's another section that talks about how this could be seen in the Old Testament looking backwards. Now, I, I, I'm going to be the first to tell you, I don't, think, I don't think there are a tremendous number of just crystal clear passages that you can look at in the Old Testament. As I study the Old Testament, I'm seeing more glimpses, I'm seeing more shadows, I'm seeing more illustrations. I, I also don't believe that the Old Testament Scriptures reveals everything that every person understood, the full understanding that somebody would have. It's not intended for that. It's, it's a story that is carrying the storyline forward. It's a storyline that's leading up to a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And so that storyline doesn't, it's not obligated to explain and expound upon everything that every person of faith understood about redemption in the Old Testament. So in any event, though, we look at this, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Of this, salvations, of this salvation, the prophets, now this is certainly referring to the salvation of the soul, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. A suffering Savior can be found in the Old Testament, but so can a conquering king. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So you talk about another example of looking back at the Old Testament to see things now with the benefit of a new set of glasses or the benefit of hindsight, to see something that is now clearer than it had been originally. Now to all nations indicates God's desire for the salvation of all men without exception. That should be your takeaway from that. Christ's redemptive work is revealed openly to the world as the gospel goes forth. So as the gospel is proclaimed, my gospel, is how Paul again said that, as we look at how the gospel is proclaimed, and you look at the preaching of Jesus Christ, that has had the effect of revealing openly God's interest and plan of salvation for all mankind. Now, what's the objective, the ultimate objective of all that? To establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ with what objective in mind? Why did it go out to all nations? Why is God interested that all men would be saved? For the obedience to the faith. That's the objective. That word that's translated obedience, it can refer to answering or responding favorably. It doesn't always have the same flavor that we put on that word. To obey the gospel by believing. You obey the gospel by believing. So some people have taken this and turned it into you have to also confirm your faith through works or through obedience. That's not what this means. You obey the gospel by believing believing accepting or trusting the message presented. And even though we're short on time, we need to turn to 2 Thessalonians 1 because I want to prove that to you. This is a common thing to hear, that you authenticate your faith with obedience. No, you obey the gospel by believing in the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Bible consistently teaches that it's only through believing that we can have the gift or access the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need 2 Thessalonians 1. We're going to pick up in verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming ven- fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. What is the thing that's going to subject you to God's wrath? Not knowing God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. So they take that phrase right there and they talk about now you have to confirm your salvation with a certain manner of living after the fact. But is that what that means? Who do not obey the gospel. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day. To be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. See, how do you, those who are described as being subject to God's wrath are described as not obeying the gospel. But what was missing in their lives? That they hadn't changed their lives to look a certain way or, or done something after they believed to confirm their salvation? No, the thing that was missing in verse 10 is they didn't believe. The ones who are going to be glorified and be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. See, the way that the person gets to escape God's vengeance, escape God's wrath is through obeying the gospel. To obey the gospel is to believe the gospel. And I hope I don't have enough time to explain that more than that, But so many people take that phrase and they say there's more to it than just believing. And verse 10 there makes it very clear that that phrase is specifically referring to those who believe and those who did believe what they heard amongst the testimony of the evangelistic outreach of the apostle Paul now. Verse 27 here, will end quickly, this is our actual doxology here is the, the praise, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And so the primary thought here is to God be the glory forever. And that's where we got our title. Everything else modifies that primary point. The praise is to God be glory forever. Amen. So when you think about this phrase, alone wise, God is the source of knowledge and discernment. He alone is truly wise is all that means. You see that in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out God alone is Wise, you see Jude twenty four b to God our Savior. This is another doxology, another prayer of praise. Who alone is wise. Same language. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. A prayer of praise to God be the glory. That's a that's a doxology, a prayer prayer of praise. You be glorified, Lord. You see, accepting that God alone is wise in a practical and experiential way that is life changing. It's very similar. This could be your takeaway this morning. He is able, now unto him who is able, that's maybe the takeaway. But unto him who alone is wise, when you finally accept that in a practical way, in an experiential way, it changes your life because it causes you to trust and depend on the Lord to direct and lead instead of leaning on your own understanding. If you see that God only is wise, he's the only source of wisdom, then you wouldn't be leaning on your own understanding. One of the primary things that's holding you back in your Christian life, just like it's holding me back in my Christian life, is that temptation through the flesh to trust myself, to lean on my own understanding instead of to trust that God alone is wise. And then we see this glory, to God be glory through Jesus Christ forever. All that speaking of is the idea that God's glory and wisdom is displayed through Jesus Christ. It's displayed through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of Jesus Christ, my gospel that Paul was just talking about. Specifically, he's focused on the redemptive work of Christ, that, how that brought glory to God. You see Jesus talk about this here as he anticipates his death, burial, and resurrection. Judas has just betrayed him, and he knows this is coming. So he's referring to his own death, burial, and resurrection when he says, So when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. There's this idea that the sacrifice of Christ brought glory to God. That's what it means here when you say, to God be glory through Jesus Christ. That was one means that God was glorified. How long should he, God be glorified? Forever. And it's important to remember that God alone deserves the glory. To God be the glory, great things He has done. To give someone glory is to honor them, praise them, elevate them, lift them up. Think of all the things that you're lifting up, including yourself when you're not thinking straight. Thinking of all the things that you're prioritizing, you're emphasizing, you're elevating, you're putting the focus on besides Jesus Christ, besides God Himself. And the Bible teaches us that God is the only one who deserves that glory. You see that in 2 Peter 3, 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So to God be the glory forever. Expressions of praise are the natural byproduct of being awestruck by God. Your level of amazement increases as you grow in grace, knowledge, and understanding. As you are more and more captivated and amazed by your God, you would sing praises more and more often to God. That should be the natural flow of that. That as I see how awesome it is, I should be proclaiming praises to Him, praises about Him to others, and praises to Him for what a great, and awesome God He is. You should be quick to give God all the glory when you understand that apart from the redemptive work of Christ, you were hopeless. So to the extent that He is able to work in your life, You should be quick to give Him glory for any success in your life because it started with Him rescuing you to begin with, and then the power source of His Spirit is the only thing making that possible. So if it's Christ exclusively working in you that makes Christian living even possible, then you should be quick to give Him the glory. We should be quick to realize that it's not I, but it's Christ. makes me think of another song recently that says, Your praise will ever be on my lips. To God be glory forever. That should be the perspective of every Christian. And may it be true of us. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the com- communion. We're going to move into that here this morning. If you're unfamiliar with what that is, it's an illustration, it's a remembrance. It's something that Christ taught the disciples before he was crucified. He said, I want to do this. I want you to do this as a way to remember me. And so as they ate a meal together, they shared a meal together. We're not doing that this morning. But as they would share a meal together, or as they did with Jesus, he said these various elements, one being this bread... This is going to be symbolic. Every time you break it together, you're intentional about remembering me, you break this bread together, it should be a remembrance of my body that was broken for you as I died in your place. And then he said, and every time you drink this cup, this wine will be a remembrance of me and my blood that was shed on your behalf as I became sin for you, even though I knew no sin, as I was the innocent lamb who died in your place. And so, as you think about these elements when they're passed around, there's nothing more mystical to it than that. It's us as a church having decided that on the first Sunday of the month, we're gonna take time to pass around some unleavened bread wafers. Okay, they're they're not that flavorful. (laughs) But you pass them around because that's the kind of, that's the way that they did it then. But you pass them around as a way to think about how Jesus' body was broken for you as he hung on the cross and he died in your place. And then we pass around grape juice here at our church. You could symbolize it with anything. We could do it with Sprite if we wanted to. But the thing about grape juice is it looks a little bit like blood. So it reminds us of the blood of Christ that was shed. Now, it isn't his blood. He says, do this as a remembrance. It's symbolic of what I've done for you. And so this doesn't make you spiritual. This doesn't save you. This doesn't bring you closer to God directly. Now, indirectly, though, when you take time to be intentional about thinking about what Christ has done for you, you're going to be strengthened and established in your faith, I hope. That's what Apostle Paul was talking about here, about the preaching of his gospel and the preaching about Jesus Christ would establish them. May the God who is able to establish them, how did he establish them? Through my gospel and the teaching of Jesus Christ. So you can be strengthened in your faith by being more mindful, more aware of Christ's sacrifice for you. Because what should that do? We judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And if all died, then we who live, we should live for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. It should motivate our response to the great sacrifice that Christ had. It should fill us with a sense of gratitude. And if I'm filled with gratitude, then I'm not no longer living for self, but I'm living for Christ. It's yet not I, but it's Christ. It's death of self, and it's life in Christ. We see that by being reminded of how Christ gave everything for us. And so, our reasonable service, all of a sudden, it seems reasonable to want to serve Him as we respond to His love. So, at this time, I'll have the elders come forward, and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper.